failure. Failure is such a small word with such big implications. Failure is something that we don't have to think about. All of us have experience with dealing with failure. On one level or another, from the time that we are a child, we understand what failure looks like. We, we try to walk, and before we go a few steps, we fall down. That's failure. And we go through life over and over again experiencing failure. Failure is one of those words that is not quite on par with other bad words. But when you're experiencing it, you know what it feels like. And all of us know what it feels like to fail because it's a part of the human condition. No matter how hard we try, we often experience failure. As a matter of fact, some of us will go so far as to not even try at all because of fear of failure. We say there's something I don't want to do, there's something I should do, there's something I need to do, but I ain't going to even try it because I might fail. That's the condition that failure has over all of us on one level or another. But it doesn't have to be that way. You see, we're, we're just into the new year. I mean, we're not far. We're, we're, we're still in February. And I imagine that many of us had plans, desires, goals, things that we said that we were either going to do or maybe even stop doing this year. And on February 16th, I would submit to say that there are probably a number of us, under the sound of my voice, who have experienced failure in that very area that we said we were going to stop doing something or start doing something. It doesn't take long because failure has that kind of grip over us. But again, it doesn't have to be that way because you have to understand the power of the word. Not just a word, the power of the word. There is power in the word. There is power that exists because of the word. But in order to understand it, you have to understand the power of the word. If I said to you, I want to give you, I want you to give me the opposite of a word, the antonym. If I said to you, hot, what would you give me as the opposite? Cold. If I said to you, give me the opposite of up, what would you say to me? Down. If I said to you, give me the opposite of God, what would you say? Satan. Most of us would say Satan. But the only problem with that is God doesn't have an opposite. <laughs> Let me explain to you. In order to understand how opposites work, you have to have like items, okay? So if I say up, the opposite is down because they both describe direction. If I say the opposite of cold, you would say hot because they both describe temperature, okay? God is in a class by himself. So you can't put nobody else in his class. Now I understand that we think that the devil is the opposite of God, okay? But let me, let me explain something to you. You cannot have a being that creates everything that created a being and you call that being opposite of God. 
as much as we understand, as much as we want to reflect on how Satan is, he's not the opposite of God because he's a created being. He's a fallen angel. Now, don't get me wrong. He has power. But the only power that he has is the power that God gave him. So that doesn't put him on the same level of God as God. Now, when you say, why is that important? It's important because we look at the word failure the same way. There is power in failure. There is, there is authority in failure, but we don't want to give it more authority than we have to. We want to keep it in its proper context. Because just like the songwriter said, there is no failure in God. God is so tied to his word that the Bible tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. So God is so tied to his word that he has formed this intimate relationship where he is a part of his word. That's how significant the word is. So what happens? What, what do we need to do as a result? We need to understand that because of that connection, because of that relationship, we have power available to us through his word. But what we got to do is connect the dots and make the connection between what he says about his word and what he wants us to do with his word. So I'm going to try to give that to you this morning from this book of James. I want you to take away three points that will forever change not only our lives, how we do things, but has the potential to change the entire world because of the impact of the power of the word. In verse 21, he says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. The first thing we have to do in understanding the power of the word is we have to receive the word. Receive the word. He says, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James is writing to a bunch of Christians who are suffering, who are struggling, and who are challenged. He began in the first part of this chapter by telling them to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He, he gave them a message that said, I know you're struggling, but count it all joy. I don't know about you, but when I'm struggling, the last thing I want to do is count it joy. The first thing I want to do is react to what I'm struggling to. He says, no, receive the word with meekness. The meekness is op the opposite of what we want to describe, what we want to do when we're struggling through something. He says, receive the word with meekness. In order for us to understand the power of the word, we got to receive it with meekness. We got to say, I know how I feel about what you're saying, Jesus, but I know what you're saying is better than how I feel. I, I can't let my emotions dictate to me what I'm going to do with your word. So we got to receive it with meekness. He called it the implanted word, the implanted word. The implanted word means God takes a little bit of that word and puts it into your soul and my soul. That means everybody can hear the same sermon, but how it hits you might be different than how it hits me. Because he's implanted that word into us, and he's given us a little bit of him to make a difference. And so you can hear the same message, but receive it differently. Because it's implanted to each and every one of us. 
He goes on and he says, which is able to save your souls, which is able to save your souls. Now, we know that the word in and of itself doesn't save our souls. But what the word does, it sets up the foundation for us to accept Christ and the free pardoning of our sins. The word hits us in a way where we can't rest. You can't get away from the power of the word. When, if you are an unbeliever, when it's time for you to accept Christ, you just keep hearing something and feeling something pulling at you. And that's the word. That's the word. It keeps coming back and back and back. So it has the power to save our souls. But it first has to be received because it's of no value if we don't receive it. He goes on and he says, therefore, lay aside all, I'm sorry, he says, but be doers of the word. So after receiving the word, the second thing we got to do is we got to practice the word. We got to practice the word. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourselves. If you and I don't practice the word and all we do is hear the word, James put it nicely. He's saying we're, we're lying to ourselves. He says you're deceiving yourselves if you think that there's going to be a change in you as a result of what you heard. It's not, it's not enough to come in and hear a sermon. It's not enough to come in and hear a good song. Because if that's all we got, we're going to leave the same way we came. There is no, there's not going to be a change. The only way a change takes place is if we practice what we hear. If we practice, if we put it into use. He goes on and he says, for, any, for if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He, he paints this word picture of the word of God and a mirror. The word of God and a mirror. And he says, he goes away, observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. He says, let me give you a picture. You got a man who goes before a mirror. Now, for most of us as men, we understand this. Because when we go before a mirror, as a man, we look in the mirror. And we turn and we go away. Because we, what we're checking for is we just want to make sure ain't nothing hanging. We want to make sure just ain't, ain't nothing, you know, that out of place. That's all we care about. What he's saying is, Let's go like a woman would look at a mirror. When a woman looks in the mirror, she gets up in the morning, and she probably has a makeup area where she looks at the mirror on the makeup area. And she puts on whatever she's putting on, and then she gets up. And then she probably has a full-length mirror behind the door so she can check front and back. If she's a passenger in the car, she's slipping down this visor to look at the mirror. And when she gets to her destination, she might have something in her pocketbook that she takes out and just further examines everything. Because 
what she's doing, she ain't just looking casually. She's looking to make adjustments. She's making adjustments. Now, why is that important? It's important because the mirror, like the word, is designed to tell you the truth. That's all it's designed to do. It's designed to tell you the truth. But what the mirror, like the word, does not have the power to do is make the adjustments. You and I still got to make the adjustments. So you can look in the mirror all you want. And if something ain't right, if you just turn around and walk away, it still ain't going to be right. Just like the word. If you listen to the word, but you don't practice it, don't look for any change to come. Because it doesn't have the power to make the truth change. It has the power to reveal the truth. That's all it does. So he says, if you walk away from the mirror and you are a hearer only and not a doer, don't look for any change. As a matter of fact, he goes on and he gives us the converse of that. He says in verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. The perfect law of liberty. He, he goes on and he describes the Bible as the perfect law of liberty. Why is that? He's describing the Bible as the perfect law of liberty because when we move from just hearing the word to being doers of the word, the Bible frees us up. It, it gives us a freedom that we never knew. And so the more we get to understanding that we need to be doers of the word, the more freedom we will experience. That's why he calls it the perfect law of liberty. He says, one, you continue in it, and it's not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. He says, you practice it. If you practice it, he goes on and he says, this one will be blessed. This one will be blessed. Now, by show of hands, how many come to church to get a blessing? For the most part, everybody comes to church to get a blessing. I mean, if you, if you don't come to church to get a blessing, something's probably really wrong with you, right? Our expectation is when you come to church, you're going to be blessed just by coming, okay? As a matter of fact, some of us will say, I ain't going to miss church because I don't want to miss my blessing, okay? Because that's how we tie our association with coming to church with a blessing. And that's okay. But what we need to realize is, Biblically speaking, a blessing is more than that. As a matter of fact, a blessing is not designed to just be for you or for me. A blessing is designed to come to us and flow through us to somebody else. As a matter of fact, if we are not blessing somebody by being blessed, we're missing the whole point. We're missing the whole point. Don't get me wrong. God sometimes will bless us in spite of us, okay? But what he wants to know is, how are you going to take the blessing that I give you and be a blessing to somebody else? So many of us want a, a nicer house, a bigger house. And God says, why would I give you a bigger house when you won't invite nobody in over for dinner? You, you want a better car, but nobody can ride in it but you. What, what kind of sense does that make? He says, what our prayer should be is, Lord, give me X, Y, Z, whatever, whatever the blessing is. And this is how I'm going to use it to bless somebody else. That's what our prayer ought to be. He, we ought to be telling him how, if he blesses us, how somebody else is going to be blessed. But later on, James says, 
We have not because we ask not. And when we do ask, we only ask because we want it for ourselves. Okay? So it's about understanding what a blessing looks like. That's why he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said, move away from your family, and I'm going to send you to a nation. I'm going to bless you. And the whole world is going to be blessed through you. Because the blessing, again, is designed to come to us and flow through us. If the blessing stops with us, then it's of really no value, okay? Because he wants to know how he can bless us to bless somebody else. How do you know that? Because he says he will be blessed in what he does. He will be blessed in what he does. That automatically implies we ought to be doing something, okay? The blessing doesn't come just for us. It comes in what we do. So what should we be doing? After we have received the word, after we have practiced the word, the last thing we ought to do with it is share the word. If you have a child and you want your child to learn the piano, you're going to get somebody to come alongside you to teach them the piano. The first thing that child has to do is they have to embrace the lesson. They have to agree. They have to want to learn the piano. They have to receive the piano lesson. And if, if nothing else happens, they are going to then get lessons, and they will then practice the piano. If they don't practice the piano, you paying for nothing. Because the whole idea of them learning the piano is they need to practice. So as they're learning, they got to practice. But the next thing that has to happen has to occur or it doesn't make sense. At some point in time, after all that practice, after all those lessons, there should be some kind of recital. Somebody should hear them play. If somebody don't hear them play, you just wasted all your money. Somebody should hear, somebody should be the beneficiary of that lesson. There has to be a sharing of what has transpired. Likewise, once we receive the word, once we practice the word, we have to share the word. There has to be a sharing of the word. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. We're just, we just gathering for no reason. So how do we share the word? Well, first of all, he tells you what not to do. He says in verse 26, if any of you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now, he didn't say your religion was immature. He didn't say your religion was growing. He says, if you can't keep your mouth in check, your religion is useless. If you and I can't watch what we say, we just talk in religion. We just talk in religion, okay? If we can't control how our tongue works, and James has more to say about it if you read the rest of the chapter. But if we can't control how our tongue works, then our religion is useless. He says, I don't want to hear about how religious you are when you say everything that comes to your mind. Because that ain't religion. That ain't religion. So, again, he's talking about sharing the word. So how should sharing work? He says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. He says to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. He, he gives two examples of what true religion is that seem to be unrelated. 
The first one is, he says to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Now, if you look in the Bible, you really had no lower class of citizen than an orphan and a widow. That's, that was it. That's, that's almost at the bottom of the, of the ladder. So why is he telling us that if we want to experience true religion, if we want to share the word, we should be taking care of orphans and widows in their trouble? He's saying if we want to receive the word, if we want to practice the word, if we want to share the word, we ought to be doing something for somebody who can't do nothing for themselves. As a matter of fact, he's going so far in saying that not only can they not do it for themselves, they can't pay you back no matter how hard they want it to. It's easy to do something for somebody if you expect something in return, okay? But it's a whole together different story to do something for somebody who can't in their wildest dreams do anything back for you. That's the goal of what we ought to be about, is we ought to be giving back to somebody who can't help us in no way, shape, or form. But because of Jesus and what he's done for us, we ought to be sharing the word. That's what he's talking about, how we share the word. We share the word by what we do, but not by what we say. Not by, not by using our mouth, it's by our actions. And so he goes on and he says to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now that's a harder one to understand because we live in a fallen world and we, we got to live in this world. So how do you keep yourself unspotted from the world? Well, we know that this world order that we live in is run by Satan. God has his hand on him in terms of what he can or can't do, but he's letting him do what he wants to do, what he wants to let him do. And we got to live in this world. So how do we keep ourselves unspotted from the world? The way we keep ourselves unspotted from the world is just strictly to understand what our allegiance is, okay? Many of us in this room know what it was like to go to school, and every morning you got up and you said something called the Pledge of Allegiance. You said, I, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Now, I don't think we do that anymore. But what's interesting is that there are people who come to this country and they want to be U.S. citizens. And as part of the process of them being U.S. citizens, one of the final things that they do is that they have to cite the Pledge of Allegiance. And why is that? It's because in America, we want people to know that no matter where you come from, you got a new allegiance. You got a new allegiance that you need to be mindful to. What James is saying here to us, he's saying to you and me, he's saying, I understand you're in a fallen world. I understand where you live. I know where you live. But what you need to understand is when you accepted me as your personal Lord and Savior, you, need a, you got a new allegiance too. And you need to live in light of the new allegiance that you made with me. Okay? We got a new allegiance that we got to be reminded of, and that's how we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. We live in the world, but we remember who we, re who we belong to. And if we remember who we belong to, that changes what we do. That changes what we do. So what, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? How do we know if we're being successful? We, we learn that we got to receive the word. We learn that we got to practice the word. We learn we got to share the word. So how do we know what success looks like? How do we know that we're doing all that we should be doing and, and having the kind of effect that we're supposed to have? The way we know if we're doing what we're supposed to do is boiled down to impact. It's boiled down to impact, okay? 
The Bible calls it bearing fruit. Okay? It's the same thing. But impact is bearing fruit. I never bowled before in my life until I got married and my wife and I had a young child. And my mother-in-law used to babysit our child during the week. And on the weekend, she would run away because she had enough. But one day, she came and she said, you know what, y'all don't really go out anywhere. Why don't you go join the bowling league at the church? And I thought to myself, why do I want to go bowling? You know, I was a young guy, an athlete. I ain't know nothing about bowling. I mean, how hard could it be? The pins don't move, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so I went out there and I decided to go bowling. But what I quickly discovered is bowling is a little different, okay? Because you have different things going on. Like, first of all, you got to wear different shoes. And if you're lucky, you got a thing on your arm. And when you're bowling, there's a style associated with bowling. And so what I quickly learned is if you want to bowl, you take your hand in the ball and you cock it back and you throw it as hard as you can. And, you know, if you really want to do it, you get your arm up and do like this. And, and if, you really, if you're really, like, into it, you kick your leg out. You know, and, you, and you, you, you show this bowling style, okay? And that's all well and good. But there's only one problem is when you're in a bowling lane, on either side of the lane is something called a gutter, okay? Now, I don't care how pretty your style looks. If that ball goes into the gutter, you a failure because <laughs> ain't no pins been knocked down. So I don't care how good you look in doing that style, it's of useless. It's, of useful, it's, it's useless because the only way you know that you're successful is if you're knocking down some pins. If you ain't knocking down no pins, you might look good, but you're a good-looking failure. <laughs> God says to us, I've given you my word. I've given you my word, and I want my word to have its effect. How do you know if you're successful? If you make an impact. If you and I, if we as a church aren't making an impact in somebody else's, somebody else's lives, we say amen at all the right times. We come to church looking good. We can have all the programs we want. But if we ain't being effective, if we ain't having an impact, we good-looking failures. I hate to break it to you. We good-looking failures. And that's what it boils down to is impact. It's impact. Now, I know some of you say, I struggle with this word because it's hard to read and it's hard to understand. And, and that might be true, okay? But the one thing about God's word that is so beautiful is that it meets you right where you are, okay? You, you ain't got to do too much for it to hit you where it needs to hit you because that's the kind of God we serve. He's able to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and he's able to, he's able to make it so that whatever it is you need you can get. But what's necessary is that we do it by faith. We do it by faith. It's, it's like when you're sick, you may go to a doctor that you don't know. And depending upon how sick you are will determine how much you listen to that, what that doctor says. If that doctor, if you ain't sick enough and you ain't really comfortable in feeling them, they might give you a prescription and you say, well, you know what? I ain't really worried about it. I'll keep it moving. Because you ain't sick enough. 
But if you're sick enough, I don't care what you know of that doctor, they write something down on a piece of paper. You can't read it. You take it to somebody else to fill it who you don't know. But because you're sick enough, you're going to trust that what they gave you is going to help you, and you're going to take it. And guess what? The more you take of it, the more benefits you see and the more developing you, you become. God says the same thing of his word. The more we trust in him, okay? And I said trust in him. I didn't say believe in him because how many know many of us believe in a God that we don't trust, okay? The more we trust in him, the more we trust in him, the more we will take his word for the power that exists and we will believe in his word and the more he will give us. And the more he gives us, guess what? The more we start to want. The more we start to want. And the more we start to want, the more changes we see. Okay? So it's a process. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But it happens because we take him at his word. We take him and his word seriously. We receive his word. We receive his word. We put his word into practice. And then we, we endeavor to share his word. And if we do that, I promise you, we will see fruit. We will see impact. We will see impact in your life and my life and in the lives of others as we stand. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. Just